0: How you doing? This is the John Riley Project. Welcome to, on a on a Tuesday evening. We're live streaming here, and I uh, want to welcome you to our evening broadcast. So we're kind of shaking it up with the time of the live stream. I'll give you a little bit of update, insight on what we're up to. But hey, thanks for joining us. You know we're. Live streaming on both Facebook and YouTube. That means you can participate in the conversation. Just uh, you know, go online and just type in some of your comments and questions in the chat. I'll see them here on my screen, and we will get started. But today we got a lot in store for you, so we're going to talk a little bit about Joe Biden and his plan to cancel debt. We're going to talk a little bit about my recent trip to Costco, which is one of my great my favorite stores and and a little bit of how that ties in with Biden and and some of the things going on in the world. And then we'll briefly touch on Fernando Tatis and Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. And then at the very end, I'm going to provide a preview for some of the local elections because the election season is getting started. And I just want to share some top of mind thoughts on some of the candidates and some of the races here in my local hometown of Poway, you know, because uh, we, you know, we have a mayor race, a city council race, there's school board, and there's a few other interesting elections. So I'll give a little bit of a preview on that. So, you know, how you doing? Um, thanks for joining me and welcome to the podcast. So, um, yeah, I just want to just kind of address one thing: is you know, normally we're doing the live stream Wednesdays at two, and that's been a really good time slot for us, but. I'm kind of shaking things up. I, I, I want to start going more in the evening. I think in the evening we have a better opportunity to grow our audience, to uh, get more participation in the live chat. I'm looking forward to that. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've also kind of rearranged my schedule, you know, because we're doing Hacksaw and his podcast every Thursday afternoon. And I just started, thought this was a really a good time to juggle things. So we're going to be going Tuesdays at 7 now on a fairly consistent basis moving forward. But um, – OK, so again, yes, yeah, student debt, Costco, Fernando Tatis, Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, and a preview of the Poway elections. That's the agenda for tonight. Join us on the live stream. OK, let's dive right in and let's talk a little bit about this plan. And it was a it was the headline story on AP dot com that, you know, there's been this talk of canceling student debt. And Joe Biden has been under pressure by a lot of the liberals, you know, particularly Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, but also a lot of other uh, Democrats, uh, Chuck Schumer and others in Washington, D.C., urging him to you know, cancel debt to some degree. And, and in the campaign season, Biden seemed a little bit hesitant to do it. He was maybe thinking we just do a little bit of it. Well, it seems like it's really coming to a head. And, you know, given everything that's been on the table with the, the Democrats, I mean, their agenda has been you know with the exception of build back better they've been getting a lot of their agenda accomplished and frankly this inflation reduction act was a miniature version of build back better so they're getting a lot going you know they're getting a lot of their agenda accomplished and i think they're figuring why don't we just jump in and address this student debt crisis while they have the momentum and before You know, we have the midterm elections, which are only a few months away. And, you know, there's a danger that the Democrats aren't going to have the power to do it. So they're jumping on it now. Hey, on the live stream, I see Mike Ryan joining us. How you doing, Mike? Nice to see you. Um, So let's just take a quick peek at some of the things that Biden's got going on here. So this is sort of the whispers that are coming out of the White House that there's a plan to forgive $10,000 in federal student loans and extend the pause on payments through January. Because, you know, the student loan payments plan that have been essentially in pause mode since the pandemic started, since we had COVID. Um, And the federal government, you know, they give out the lion's share. I mean, it's a huge percentage of the overall student loan debt comes from the federal government. So they can call the shots on how a lot of this is done. You know, nowadays, a very small percentage of student loans are done in the private market through private banks and and other private lenders. So, yeah, so Biden is sort of in the catbird seat and he's got the Democrats in Congress and this is what they want to accomplish. And yeah, like I said, the liberals are just applying a ton of pressure on him. And the plan is, and again, this is an official, it's sort of what's been leaked out of the White House, is that they're going to provide forgiveness, but only for people that have income up to but not beyond one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars a year. So again, a lot of this manipulation: uh, who gets the who gets the bailout, who doesn't? You know, and a lot of this is politicized, right? Because they don't want to see debt forgiveness being given to rich people. They don't want to see um, people that are you know maybe in the upper middle class even getting some of this debt relief. I mean, because let's face it: one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars a year. In California is a heck of a lot different than one hundred twenty five thousand dollars a year in a state like Oklahoma or Missouri. So this has a lot of interesting implications as this is being discussed. Now a couple other comments on here, that and is that you know the 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 lefties in Congress, Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, they don't think this is anywhere near what it should be. They think that he should you know eliminate. worth of student loan debt. Now, it's my understanding that the vast majority of student loan debt is about $20,000 and less. I believe that's true. But they want to essentially give debt up to $50,000. But really, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and some of the far left progressives, what they really want is to make uh, college free. Um, they, they don't think anyone should pay. And so that, that's why I think they're pushing the needle in that direction. But there were a couple of interesting tidbits in this article. And this was the thing that really got me. And this was a, a comment from Chuck Schumer. And he argued to Biden, you know, because they're all persuading Biden to do this. He argued to Biden that, Biden, that doing this, you know, this debt relief is, is the right thing to do, both morally and economically. And I, I kind of want to break that down because, you know, morally is an interesting term, right? I mean, morally, according to whose standards, whose morals, because um, morality is not absolute. Different people have different interpretations of what is moral. Um, and, and sometimes I think people don't really consider some of the consequences. And I mean, I mean, consider this. I mean, let's say, you know, for, for example, first of all, if student loan debt is canceled, it doesn't just sort of poof, disappear. I mean, it disappears as an obligation for that student, but the debt still has to be paid. That debt is still on the books. And so when the government is going to forgive federal student loan debt, what they're essentially doing is saying, we are going to pay for it through other means. And what does that mean? It means taxpayers today are going to pay for it. And- future generations will be paying for it in the added debt load that comes along with this. So it raises a very interesting question about morality, because on one hand, forgiving someone's student loan debt sounds nice, sounds like we're being kind and we're helping out the people that are struggling that need some relief from student debt, but you're shifting that burden to other people you know either people today that are paying taxes or people in the future now consider for example that you are a person that has a fairly successful career but maybe you didn't go to college maybe you were uh, you were really interested in automobiles and you were a mechanic coming out of high school, but you had a real entrepreneurial flair and you started doing some work on the side. You started helping people with their vehicles. Eventually, you started up your own auto repair shop and then maybe you built out another one and, and you kind of got a nice little entrepreneurial thing going on here, but you never went to college. But because they're entrepreneurs, they are probably going to be earning a decent living and probably paying a healthy amount in tax. Is it moral? To burden that guy or that woman who started up a business, who is earning a good income, but didn't go to college. Is it moral to burden them to pay for someone else's taxes or for someone else's student loan debt? Is it moral also? There's a lot of people that went to college that work their way through college. Now, that's what I did. I, I, got, I got a little bit of help from my parents, but for the most part, I worked my way through college. I went to UCSD. Now, granted, this was in the early and mid 80s when college was dramatically less expensive. And we're going to talk in a minute about good ideas to lower the cost of college. But there are people that they busted their butt, they sacrificed, they worked hard, and they got themselves through college without any debt, or maybe they accrued some debt, and they paid it off. They took personal responsibility for their situation. Is it moral to have them ex- take on the burden of someone else today that's going to have their debt forgiven? So I think this just raises an interesting question is, when, you, when Chuck Schumer says this is the, the right thing to do, both morally and economically, well, moral according to whose terms? Uh, according to what definition Um, Now, in my opinion, if you are an innocent person that suddenly has to assume the burden of someone else, to me, that's not moral at all. I mean, you know, I talk about this podcast being all about our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, those are rights that we have as individuals. But if other people are going to be placing burdens on you that get in the way of you pursuing your own happiness, well, then is that moral? So it just, it, 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 it's a very interesting topic. Um, so this isn't a done deal. I mean, I know they're going to talk about, um, you know, how they're going to implement this, but I, I just, I just think this is an interesting topic because it leads us into a lot of other areas that I want to explore in tonight's podcast. Now, first of all, let's agree if we will, that college is way the hell too expensive. Um, And whether it's, you know, tuition is crazy. College textbooks are crazy. If you look at the inflation rate, I mean, forget the fact that we are experiencing tremendous inflation across the entire economy, but just look at inflation in those particular sectors of college tuition, textbooks, that sort of thing. Even housing, right, is experiencing a lot of inflation. That's been going on not just since the pandemic started. This has been going on for decades. So there is clearly a huge problem here in the way higher education is funded and the way the cost structure is set up and all the incentives here that are going on. But I don't know. I just have... I, have, I believe that if they're going to cancel this student debt, that might help that individual. And, you know, good for that individual that they get their debt erased or a portion of their debt erased. But it ends up harming other people. It ends up harming other people. And it actually increases the price of goods. Um, and I'm going to break that down in a little bit as well. Yuri Bolan on the live stream saying they're trying to get everything done before the midterm. So that's exactly right, Yuri. I mean, and frankly, if you were in their position, if you were Donald Trump or Chuck Schumer, if you were Nancy Pelosi, you would definitely be doing this. You would be trying to get your agenda through because you know, there's a lot of question marks as far as which party is going to come out victorious in the midterms. Um, frankly, it's sort of a race to the bottom is which party is going to be the least damaged coming through the midterms. Um and so yeah they' they're trying to get their agenda passed before the you know before the teams switch because if the Republicans get a majority in the Senate or the House, a lot of this is just never going to happen um, but you know i I did some research on this, and right now about forty four percent I can't remember if this was nationally or just in California, but about forty four percent of high school students go to a four year university, and twenty two percent go to a community college, a two-year school. So that's like two-thirds of high school students actually go on to college, which that's incredible. I mean, when I went to college in 19, early 1980s, the percentage was way less than that. I mean, it, it was probably 20% went to four-year schools, maybe even less. Um, and if you added in the two-year schools, maybe a third of the people went to college. It was something. I mean, it's, it's greatly shifted. And on one level, that's great. There's more people, more education. But on another level, a lot of it is because of the the distortions in the system that have created a lot more college students and as a result, a lot higher costs. Um, But, uh, I mean, consider this. And this is what I said. I think these sorts of subsidies, and in this case, canceling debt will ultimately raise the price of education. I mean, consider this. Okay, let's say that I, as a business person, I am going to provide a service to you. And in the private market, we're going to negotiate. Perhaps I'll have a price that I'll ask. Maybe you can't afford it. And then maybe we might work a deal. We might come to a compromise. Maybe you'll pay the price. You know, we, we can work it out. It's something that the two of us can work out. But When there's a third party involved in this situation like the government, if the government's subsidizing it or in this case canceling the debt, then it's almost – the price has a far less important role to play in this, right? I mean, in fact, if the government hypothetically covered the entire cost of college education, then you as a student wouldn't care how much it costs because you're just going because someone else is paying. And if you are a a university and you're charging tuition, you're going to get – try to get as much as you can and you're not going to have any competitive pressures to keep your prices in check because the student will pay whatever price it is because someone else is paying. And that's why a lot of government subsidies end up driving up the price of the goods or service that's in question. And if you – what's interesting, there's a really good chart that I remember seeing that shows – these industries from the year 2000 to 2019, you know, prior to COVID when things kind of went sideways. And it showed which industries had the greatest amount of inflation, you know, price increases just in that narrow industry. And what's number one? Healthcare. What's number two? College tuition and college textbooks. And then right down the list there, housing, another one. And it's interesting to consider that. I mean, these industries that are having such tremendous price increases, not just in the last couple of years, but for the last couple of decades, the last two or three decades, they end up being the industries that have the most subsidies from the government. See, it's funny how that works, right? Um, So on one level, it seems like a very altruistic thing to do, to help out the little guy, to, to forgive that college loan debt, So they don't have to carry that burden. So they'll have more spending power in the economy. That's what Schumer's arguing, that they'll be able to spend more in the economy. It's good for the overall picture. But there are always unseen consequences. And when other people have to bear that burden, we can question the morality of it. But at the same time, it provides a perverse incentive for the prices to keep going up. And that's what we're seeing in college education right now. I mean, look at my um, alma mater. I went to UC San Diego, and gosh, when I graduated, there were 13,500 undergrads in the late 80s. Now, there are over 40,000. <laughs> 40,000. Um, it's unbelievable. I think it might even be the university with the, the, the largest student enrollment of any of the UCs. I mean, it used to be UCLA was number one. In fact, I bet UCSD might even maybe might even have more students in San Diego State, which is incredible. But there's huge demand to go there. Right. And people can get these student loans. They're very easy to get. Um, so, uh, I mean, let's let's talk about this for a minute. And before I get to my trip to Costco, because I think that provides a an interesting sort of parallel to, to see how this world works. But before I do, just I want to quickly say we're live streaming on Facebook and YouTube. That means that you can participate in the conversation. Just type your comments in Facebook or on, on YouTube. I'll see them on my screen and I'll read your questions and comments on the air. So what can be done, right? People want to forgive college loan debt and we can for- forgive college loan debt, but it still doesn't solve the problem. The prices are too high. It's like that governor candidate in New York about 10 years ago. He goes, the rent's too damn high. Well, college tuition is too damn high. I mean, hell, I mean, we're putting two kids through school. Um, It's expensive. You know, I get it. I mean, I was talking to one of my buddies from college, and his daughter is going to dental school. He's paying, oh, my gosh, you know, hold on to your hat right here. He's paying $125,000 a year for his daughter to go through dental school. Now, I don't think he's bearing the full burden of that. I think the daughter will be, but it's insane expensive. So if we just cancel the debt, that doesn't solve the core problem, that it's too expensive. So what can be done? What's the right thing to do? Well, number one, what they need to do, just like you know, it's Econ 101, you need to increase supply because right now supply is limited. There's only only so many seats in a lecture hall. Um, a, a university like the University of California, yeah, UCSD is expanding, but a lot of the others aren't expanding all that much. And really, when was the last time they created a new University of California campus? They built Merced. When was that? Like twenty, twenty-five years ago. I mean, it's been a long time. So there's not enough supply. So. One of the things they can do, in my opinion, to lower the cost of college is to expand access to online education. You know, we kind of went through a lot of that during the pandemic. And universities kind of ponied up and rebuilt some of their IT infrastructure so they could live stream lectures, just like we're live streaming here, having online exams. There's a lot that can be done with technology today to open this up to a lot more people so that they can attend legit accredited universities. So, you you know, some people want to go to college and have the full college experience and live in the dorms and go to the football games and, 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 you know, of course, take their classes. But there's a lot that can be done online now and can be done for far less money because people will then not only have to, instead of going into a lecture hall, they can do it right from their home. So universities don't need to keep building more and more lecture halls, more and more facilities. Expanding online education could be a huge boon um, for those universities, but also to really provide more access and lower prices for, for people, for students. But what else can be done? Because okay, we all agree college education is too expensive. Okay, So what else can be done? Rather than just canceling the debt, and not solving the core problem, another thing that can be done is that you can make your college tuition tax deductible and this is my understanding. if you're an accountant by all means, please correct me on this. but my understanding is is that your tuition for a university for a college tuition can only be deducted two thousand dollars a year can be deducted. Um, but why the cap? I mean a lot of schools their tuition for the year is 20000 30000 Heck, I think if you go to USC, it might be 60000 So why is it capped at 2000 Now, if you're a corporation and you happen to have training programs for your employees, well, the entire training program is fully tax deductible. It's a legitimate business expense, the entire amount. Now, imagine if they could provide tax deductibility for college tuition, and they let you do it later on in your career when you were a higher earning person, when you were making more money, and then you could apply that deduction in those years, that could be actually a huge win-win because you're going to be able to give relief to those students. And let's be real, and this is kind of an interesting tangent, a lot of times The people that are going to college, some come from rich families, some students, some students from middle class and poor families. We all know that. But generally speaking, people that come out of college are doing way better than people that don't go to college. I mean, granted, there's a couple of maybe exceptions to the rule. But generally speaking, when people go to college and they come out, especially if they go to graduate school, they're going to be high income earners. Which, which is, by the way, why I think it's just nuts to cancel debt because you end up kind of rewarding future rich people <laughs> rather than um, addressing the, what the core problem really is. So they could deduct that expense just like any business would. A third thing that they could do is right now college loans are ineligible for bankruptcy. So, you know, and I think, you know, if you, if you go bankrupt – You can write off your credit card debt and a lot of your other debts, but you can't eliminate your college debt. And you kind of understand why, because if people are taking out a college debt and then they get out of college and, you know, most people, when they get out of college, they're not earning a lot in their first year or two. Well, they might just say, hey, if I just declare bankruptcy, like in the first year after I graduate, then I can make that college debt go away. So that's probably why they make college debt ineligible for bankruptcy but consider what kind of incentive structure that creates when a bank can give out a loan and they know there's no way that the, the lender can go bankrupt on them that means they're guaranteed to have that loan repaid that's a sweet sweet deal if you're a bank if especially if government distorted the rules to help those banks so they're guaranteed to have that money paid back. So what's a bank going to do if they know that when they give out loans that are being paid at whatever percentage that that loan is being take, given, they know that's essentially easy money because there, there's no risk of losing the money because they can't declare bankruptcy. So as a result, more college loans are given out in, from private lenders, which, by the way, are a small fraction of the overall lending market. But even amongst government lending, government, because it's incentivized not by sound fiscal policies, but instead incentivized by political outcomes, by political uh, gains, you know, congressmen and senators want to get reelected. So they want to give away the goodies as much as they can. So government college uh, student loans are very plentiful, very easy to get. And so what does that do? It creates greater demand on the system greater demand more students that's why there's 40,000 students at UC San Diego when when I went to school it was less than a third of that so these easy to get college loans sound nice kind of sound altruistic but the, what they end up doing is distorting the market creating excessive demand and there's already not enough supply to keep up i mean heck at UC San Diego They didn't have enough dorm room space to house all the students. And then the students got kicked out into the private sector housing market, which is already a mess. There were students commuting 40, 50 miles a day to go to college in La Jolla at UCSD. It's nuts. There's not enough supply to keep up with the demand. And we all know in Econ 101, when demand's high and supply's low, price goes up. Because there's an incentive for price to go up. And that's what's happening. So they should end the policy of making loans ineligible for bankruptcy. Because if they were eligible for bankruptcy, then lenders would be a lot more careful and a lot more selective in terms of who they give the loan to. Like, for example, if a student is majoring in computer science or perhaps they're taking out a loan to go to dental school or to medical school or to law school, that bank knows they're going to be in a high-income profession, and they know that the likelihood of being repaid on that loan is very good, and they'll be more likely to extend a loan. But if a student is is, is pursuing a degree in a category that doesn't have very good job prospects, then that bank is going to be maybe a lot more careful about extending that loan. And so as a result, if banks are a little more selective, there's going to be less students going to college, and as a result, less demand on the system. Now, I know that ruffles a lot of people's feathers because people want to see more kids going to college, and ideally they would, but I think they can do it a lot less expensively considering some of the options that I presented, expanding access and supply through online education, making the full cost of college tuition tax deductible, and here ending the ineligibility of bankruptcy but there's still one more thing that can be done and it's this and there's a big movement about this right now is not everyone needs to go to college now back when i went to college a very small percentage of people went so when you graduated from college it was a big thing i mean you kind of had a big leg up in the job market you had proven that you were able to accomplish things that you were able to be committed and see things through. You were essentially, by having a college degree, you were looked upon as an intelligent um, young adult with a bright future in their career. It was, to a a degree, kind of a Willy Wonka golden ticket, you know, compared to kids that didn't go to college. Well— Now, not everyone needs to go to college because, again, I talk about online education. There is an explosion of online education that's occurring now. Um, if you go to, uh, there's a company called Skillshare, Skillshare.com. They offer all of these classes that in in a wide variety of things. You know, uh, videography, video editing. Um, you know, just a wide range of of skills. You know, some in, in in the creative sector, some in the business sector, there's programming classes if you want to learn a specific coding language and these classes are available if I recall for like only like a couple hundred bucks a month. And you get access to a wide range of these classes. Now they're online classes, but still what a great opportunity. And in today's marketplace for For college graduates, businesses are looking for not only talented young people, but they want talented people that have tangible skills. And so if a person doesn't have the interest or the resources to go to college, they can take advantage of any one of these online education systems, some of these schools like Skillshare, and become an excellent programmer in any particular language. Now, I don't know what languages are being uh, developed now. What is it? Is it, um, it's not Cobra. I think it's Python. Isn't that one of the languages? I can't recall. But back in my day, it was C++. You know, it was Fortran 77. I'm dating myself. But uh, imagine being skilled in, the, in that niche, and you can go right into the job market with that in your back pocket. That's powerful. Um, and it's a lot less expensive than a four-year college degree. So there's a lot of different things that can be done to lower the cost of college okay so the price of college is hella expensive because of the the system that exists because of the incentive structure because of in many cases the 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 policies of altruism to try to help those in need which ultimately end up harming those in need there's a lot of, and, and all these policies that are being presented by the government today to make college more affordable end up having the opposite result and college is more expensive. That's why debt is insane and out of control and health is that way. Housing's that way. A lot of other sectors. Now let's compare this to something wildly different over the weekend, the fine wife and I, we went to Costco, you know, so uh, Costco is one of my favorite stores and, um, we went, to, you know. Sometimes we go to the one in Carmel Mountain Ranch. Sometimes we go to the one in Poway, um, and boy, I mean, I, I just I've always loved Costco because you can get some really interesting grocery items there. Um, sometimes you can get like some. Uh, meals that are very interesting. They're very good uh, to kind of complement some of your other meals in the house. Uh, There's all kinds of home goods there that are wonderful and inexpensive and all kinds of toiletries and dog food. And it's just a great place. I just, and the prices are really competitive and it's just wonderful. Well, have you ever noticed when you're in Costco how cheap the clothing is? And I don't mean cheap like bad quality. I mean, inexpensive the clothing there is unbelievably inexpensive, and I love their clothing. I mean, I, if you look through my closet, if you look in my my drawers and my dresser, I'd say at least half of my clothes come from Costco. Um, socks, underwear, everything, because it's just easy. It's accessible. The quality is good. The price is very attractive. I mean, I can get a pair of jeans for twelve bucks. I mean, think about that. I mean, when I was in high school, I remember I used to go out and buy the Levi's 501s, you know, with the button up fly, the the straight leg, which was a great look back in the day. Back then, I think those jeans were like 20 bucks. Now they're like 50 bucks if you go into a Kohl's and you want to buy a Levi's brand name. But at Costco, you can get really good quality jeans for $12. You can get, it's just insane. Um, the shirts, the jackets, the sweaters, uh, um, it's unbelievably cheap. And you're thinking, in this world where college is so expensive, where healthcare is so expensive, where the cost of housing is so expensive, how in the hell can clothing be so inexpensive? It's, it's even dramatically less expensive than it used to be 20 years ago. It's incredible, really. So I wanted to kind of break this down because it provides a really interesting compare and contrast with these other industries. So first of all, even though clothing has gotten a lot less expensive, did you know that of all the industries with tariffs, the clothing industry apparently has the highest percentage tariffs overall? Now, there might be a few exceptions, like steel might be a higher percentage, but Apparel is one of, if not the highest, percentage of tariffs on imports, so consider you 're buying a pair of jeans from Costco for nine bucks. How much are they buying them for? five okay, and then they 're buying them from a distributor, and the distributor imported them, probably paying three, which had a, a dollar tariff i 'm making up numbers so the the ultimately the cost of those goods is only two and I mean and you kind of work your way back down to. factory floor in Bangladesh where some of these things are being made. Now, in a lot of ways, this is really cool because not only are we getting product at a really low price, and frankly, a lot of the the foreign-made clothing is of really good quality. 20, 30 years ago, you wouldn't be able to say that, but today you can for sure. But in a lot of those other countries, those people are better off because prior to that factory being built in their in their city in Southeast Asia you know a lot of those people were struggling to live they were on farms just barely scratching out a living and now a lot of them are going to these factories they're working they're earning a higher income they're developing skills some of them going into management and wealth is being created you know did you know that in Southeast Asia over the last 30 years 1 billion people, with a B, 1 billion people have risen out of abject poverty due to this kind of globalism, this world trade, capitalism. As capitalism is growing in Southeast Asia, more people are getting wealthier. And it's not just in China, which we've seen China wealth explode, but it's also in India and it's... In Vietnam, and I mean, we can Sri Lanka, well, they're going through a bit of chaos right now, but a lot of other nations, as they've begun to embrace this and become trading partners with America and Europe, well, their lot in life has increased, which is wonderful. But even so, it is amazing to consider that while they're benefiting and doing far better than they used to, um, the product still comes to us, and it's still so inexpensive. Now, I, I did a a lookup of an article asking, if you look it up, why is clothing so cheap at Costco? Now, one of the things they said that they do is that for Costco, no item has a margin greater than 15%. That sounds interesting. And that sounds kind of remarkable, right? Because in the world of retail, they used to always talk about keystoning. So if you bought something for five bucks, you would sell it for 10. You know, that was a, they called it keystoning. Or sometimes they have keystoning plus 10 you know, which is plus 10%. So here, 15% margin is all Costco has across the board for all their products. Now, some might say, how, how wonderful. This is a corporation that's not price gouging us. This is a good thing. Well, think about this. The clothing at Costco, whenever I go in, there's a ton of people going through the tables of clothing. Have you ever seen it in there? And not only are there so many people going through all the clothing and finding stuff that they really enjoy, but there's a whole group of Costco employees that their only job is to reorganize the tables and refold the clothes after everyone's picked them over. So it's a constant. It's like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. It's just constantly being redone. But get this. If you look at Costco nationwide and their clothing and shoe sector accounts for 7, I had to look this up, 7 billion dollars in revenue. That's incredible. 7 billion dollars in revenue. So and if assuming it's 15%, so what would that be? That'd be um Gosh, that'd be about a billion in uh, profit. Am I I doing that right? I think so. Um, Wow, incredible. So now what's the difference between the apparel that's being imported into America and college education? Well, obviously there's a million differences, right? Um, One is a product. College education is a service. Um, One is coming from foreign uh, businesses in Asia, Southeast Asia, and some of them are, and then college education is coming from administrators and professors here in the United States. There's a lot of differences, but there's one big difference. The apparel industry is not subsidized. There's no canceling of debt to pay for clothes. There's no I mean, there are some regulations in the clothing market, but nothing anywhere near what healthcare has, what housing has, and what college um, education has. Those are industries with huge government involvement and high prices. Meanwhile, an industry like apparel has very little government involvement. And frankly, the one piece of government involvement they have are tariffs, which increase the price. But even with the tariff, I can buy a pair of jeans for $9. $9 $9 and they're good jeans. They last forever. They're not like, you know, crappy clothes that you wear them out in a, in a month and you throw them out. I mean, some of these clothes are really nice. I mean, you can even get like college apparel. They have a lot of San Diego state stuff there at, at uh, Costco. Um, you know, and, and, and they have other brand name merchandise there too. Cause some of the brand names, what they'll do is that if they have extra inventory, they'll unload it on Costco and Costco will help them move it. But, it was it's just mind blowing and you look at a lot of other things in Costco like we were walking through the television section which is the first thing you see when you walk in i mean think about that like in in 2007 when we moved into this house we bought a big screen tv it was the first time we had bought a big screen tv and it was expensive i think the tv was like 2 grand something like that and amazing, the cost to install it was even more because those installers, there were only a few that knew how to do it, and there was a lot of demand, and they were able to get a high price. Now, the TVs are bigger, they're brighter, they're more, um, uh, they're a more beautiful image, and now they're available for a few hundred bucks. It's incredible, and if you really wanted to. If you really wanted to go all the way and get, like, the best of the best of a TV at, at Costco, you might spend 1400 bucks for, like, I don't know, a gigantic, what would it be, a 75-inch TV? It's incredible how inexpensive, I mean, computers, too, going down in price. When you look at it on a cost per um, processing power, it's gone way down overall, you know, the bang for the buck. But TVs, what's what's the deal with TVs? TVs, again, very little government involvement, very little regulation. There's no debt cancellation for televisions. So to me, I, I look at this and I think to myself, well, that's why. Now, now let's talk about electric vehicles. I, you know, I talk about EVs all the time. We have two EVs that we power with our solar panels on the roof of our house, which we love. We I love to brag about this. Because while everyone's paying over five bucks a gallon for gas, we don't pay a nickel for gas. Our maintenance for our EVs is virtually zero. Um, We get free charging when we're out on the road a lot of times. Um, And with solar, we're able to power our house, run our air conditioning, power our cars. And often our electric bill at the end of the month is zero or sometimes a negative number. Last month it was negative incredible. Um, but now EVs are obviously big. They're in demand because of the price of gas and new EVs. They're getting premiums for these things. I mean, if you're lucky, you might get it at MSRP, but most places are charging more than that. Yuri Bolan on the live stream has a comment here. He says, uh, New TVs last about three to five years now. My 1989 Sony big box still works great. Yeah, well, that's one of those tube TVs, right? You know, the, the one TV we bought in 07, that lasted us about 11 or 12 years. And then finally it went. But you're right, Yuri. You, some of these, they last less amount of time. Um, but, you know, in five years, the quality is so much better. You almost want to upgrade anyways. So, anyways, back to the EVs. I you know, I, I've been shopping for an EV because I want to replace my Hyundai Kona. And it's a terrible time to buy EVs because because of the premium they're getting. You know, I went down to the Poway Hyundai dealer here in town and they were selling the Hyundai Ioniq 5, which is a great car. And they were getting like $7,000 over MSRP. And they had a waiting list of 30 people that had already put down deposits on these cars. Um, so a car that has a regular MSRP, depending on the trim level of between 50 and 60, they were getting that plus seven. And then, it, and then there was another dealer that I visited, this is a number of months ago, There was a Kia dealer and they were selling the Kia, what is it, the EV6, I think it is, which is like the sister car of the Hyundai Ioniq 5. This is a car that was selling with an m s r p It was the fully loaded version of fifty five thousand dollars. They were asking for a dealer markup of fifteen thousand dollars, so a total bottom line of seventy grand for this car i couldn't believe it, but guess what so now, a lot of those e v rebates have started to expire right i mean you know there were less and less of them were made available. And there was always pressure on the federal government. They had to re up, they had to increase or resurrect the plan. They had to extend the plan to provide more, provide more uh, rebates, tax rebates, tax credits for electric vehicles. And so they did. And that was in, I think, the Inflation Reduction Act, if I recall, was which which was really more of a climate change bill and a. I think, a healthcare bill and had really nothing to do with reducing inflation. Um, That bill extended a lot of the EV credits. And there's a lot of rules, like in some cases, the car has to be made in America or a certain percentage of the battery has to be made in America. They, They made it a little more difficult to qualify. And there's a lot less cars that are available. But already Hyundai and others are shifting production more to America. But what's interesting is, is that once they increased the rebate then both Ford and Chevrolet increase their prices on the vehicles funny how that works isn't it because they know if customers have the money to spend then and it's and it's quote someone else's money then they're 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 going to be able to the the consumer is going to have a lot less resistance spending it And therefore, the seller can get a higher price for it. And as a result, government subsidies drive up higher prices with these vehicles. Now, granted, there's a lot of other weird things going on in the market. You know, there's not enough semiconductors, so there's not enough cars. The whole automobile market's like crazy right now. But still, if you just look at that one individual element, like it was within a week after they announced that these rebates were going to be extended or expanded right away. Ford and Chevy increase prices. See? And see, college does the same thing. When there's a lot more student loans, they increase the price because they can get it. Um, and, and we're seeing that it's energy prices are going up. God, we can not talk about that until the cows come home. Um, and uh, food and, you know, some people say it's price gouging. But really, all it is is people reacting to incentives. Sellers are going to try to get the most they can for their product or service. Buyers are going to try to spend the least amount for the product or service. But the moment a third party is introduced into the equation that's going to subsidize or cover the cost or cancel the debt, it completely blows up the whole buyer-seller relationship. And that creates these distortions that we see prices go up. But in industries where we have a lot less of that sort of thing, prices, in many cases, go down aggressively just like the clothing at Costco. So just some interesting observations by me. Okay. I got two more things I want to talk about. I want to talk a little bit about Tatis and Hacksaw. That's kind of a a, a combo topic. And then I want to talk a little bit about the Poway elections coming, because I've got a couple of comments, like a little bit of a preview of the races that are coming. So we'll talk about that. But, you know, if you want to learn more about my project, the John Riley Project, go to my website, johnreillyproject.com, and there all of our podcast episodes are listed and all the YouTube videos, because, you know, we live stream on YouTube and on Facebook. I'm going to start streaming on Twitter here real quick. Um, and then all of our audio-only podcasts are on Apple Podcasts. You know, it used to be called iTunes and Spotify and iHeartRadio and and Pandora and Stitcher and, and all the popular podcast platforms. You can access it there. And all the links are there if you want to subscribe at my, at my website, johnrileyproject.com. And oh, by the way, if you know anyone wants to be a guest on this podcast, and you know I have an open invitation to political candidates to join me here, um, if you want to be a guest on my, my podcast, go to johnrileyproject.com, fill out the contact form and let me know, or just send me an email. My email address is john at johnreillyproject.com. dot com, and uh, let me know you like to be a guest, and we can schedule that. Okay, have you been following the Fernando Tatis Jr. news? Oh my God! So you know we already went through all the rigmarole with the broken wrist, and uh, and and then with the PEDs, the steroids that he took. Well, today was the big apology, and he had already met with Padres owner Peter Seidler. He had met with the general manager AJ Preller. And then today he met with his teammates and he faced the media. And this was something. It really was. Now, granted, on Thursday at 3, Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and I will really break it down. I mean, Hacksaw will go way deep with this. But my own opinion, just on a top level, is is that it's good. What happened today was good. Um, I think he's maturing, showing some humility Um, and you know, he's what, 22, 23 years old. When you were that age, he did stupid. I'm like, I speak for myself. I did stupid things. A lot of people in their early twenties, maybe behave a bit recklessly, certainly compared to what they might do. in as a middle-aged person, and he was king of the world, signed a $340 million deal, getting endorsement contracts. Good-looking guy, home-run champion, um, the face of the Padres, the face of Major League Baseball. This guy had the world in his palm of his hand. And then he ended up taking steroids, getting suspended. And really, a lot of people were angry, and rightfully so, because he's cheating. Taking steroids is cheating. Taking steroids is uh, against the rules. And it's really kind of an unfair advantage, right? That's why it's not legal um, in the sport of baseball. Now, granted, you know, there's, this has been in the sport for a long time, and a lot of people have been able to get around the tests, but he got busted. But it was very interesting to see him show remorse. And to me, this looked real, looked authentic. And I think this hopefully will be a really significant turning point for him, where because the whole world crashed upon his head when this happened. I think this could be an opportunity, it could be an inflection point in his life where he really begins to take things seriously. Now, the good news is he's going to go in and get the surgery on his shoulder. He is going to be hanging around with the Padres through the rest of the season and in the offseason to stay on the straight and narrow, and good for him, and certainly to demonstrate that he's doing all the right things, and good on him. But from my perspective, I'm— And I hope a lot of people feel the same as me. We can be disappointed, maybe even angry. But I think it's good to forgive. The sin he he committed, he didn't kill anyone. He didn't harm anyone other than himself. You know, people deserve second chances and sometimes third chances. And I, I think it's worthy to give this man, you know, a little bit of slack. I think he deserves forgiveness just like we would hope that we would receive forgiveness. Um, a lot of people in this nation are Christian. <laughs> Sometimes our Christian friends don't embrace forgiveness, which is really interesting, isn't it? Um, but then a lot of them do. A lot of Christians do embrace forgiveness. Well, this is a perfect time to demonstrate that. So I I I wish good things for him. Now, again— Hacksaw. I'll talk just briefly about that. You know, I'm, I'm co hosting a podcast with legendary sports talk radio broadcaster, NFL play by play legend, Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. It's just been the greatest thing. Um, I've been helping him out with his podcast. You know, I was introduced to Lee through some of the people like this gentleman, Jerry Donatio, and Roy Robertson that worked with uh, Lee at uh, the Mighty 1090, and I think even at the Mighty 690 introduced me to Lee. Lee was interested in doing a podcast, so I'm kind of helping him get it organized. And it's going really, really well. Now, Lee, he put him, if you know who Hacksaw is, I mean, he's amazing. I mean, you put him behind a microphone and the guy just, he's a pro. I mean, he lights up. He's got a lot of, you know, really good opinions and facts. and But we've been able to take that podcast, and I'll tell you, our analytics are going through the roof. Views. Minutes, hours consumed, subscribers just blowing up. And we've only been, we only have five episodes. And uh, it's just really going well. Now, for me, I'm like the co-host. So I'm kind of, you know, engaging a bit with Lee. But at the same time, I'm kind of the production guy. I'm running the camera switcher and engaging with the audience. So it's kind of fun for me and it's challenging me to do things in his podcast that I have yet to do in mine. And so I think you're going to start to see my podcast begin to evolve because I'm starting to get used to a lot of new ideas and new technologies to make it better. So it's a lot of fun. So if you're interested in sports talk, if you're a fan of the Padres of the NFL um, of, you know, we, we talk about PGA and LIV golf and, and premier league soccer. I mean, everything, you know, Hacksaw puts all the topics on the table. So we're doing the live stream every Thursday at three right here in the John Riley project podcast studio. It's a lot of fun. So I hope you can join us. Um, and you, and you'll, you'll find him not on the John Riley project podcast platform, but Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. He's got his own YouTube channel, his own Facebook page, his own Twitter handle and their live stream there. And then he's got his own podcast. That's on all the major podcast platforms. We haven't gotten him on Apple yet. That's the next one. Um, so I'm excited. And that's that's part of the reason why I haven't had a podcast in a couple of weeks. You know, I had family in town. My son was home for part of the summer. It was wonderful to see him and been helping out, you know, other members of my family and doing this work for Hacksaw and then my clients have been keeping me busy. So I haven't had a John Riley Project podcast in a few weeks. So I'm happy to be here tonight with you. Um, but now we're going to start doing with Tuesdays at 7. I think it's going to work a lot better. All right. Um Let's get to this final topic, and I just want to briefly just take a look at the 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 various races here in my hometown of Poway, California. You know, we started this podcast in twenty eighteen interviewing local political candidates. It was a lot of fun. um I think episode three was our first podcast with a guest It was with Pete Neald um he's been on guests on this podcast at least a dozen times. We love Pete. Um, And uh, and Tony Russo was on the fourth episode. I think Yuri Bolin, I think you were probably on the sixth or seventh. Um, And now we're, this is episode 284. Isn't that cool? Um, But we started this in 2018, interviewing political candidates, and it went really well. And then after the election, I started kind of doing more of this, more of my own opinion, rather than interviewing other people. I started sharing my own thoughts and comments. Well, we're getting back into the election season. And, you know, in the 2020 election, we, I was able to do some interviews too, but it was all during COVID and we were kind of doing it through Zoom and we were all kind of learning Zoom and it was a bit awkward. But now it's 2022. And so I always have an open invitation for any political candidate. If you want to join me on the John Riley Project, we'll sit down, we'll have a conversation, we'll talk about the issues, talk about your platform and give voters and people in the community an opportunity to learn more about you. And we'll talk for an hour. We'll talk for two hours. We'll talk for as long as we need to talk. And, you know, and my role is, you know, not to debate you as a candidate, but just to ask questions and learn more. And I love it. I I think it's really interesting. So that invitation exists for everybody. Um, But let's take a look at some of these candidates. Now, what's interesting here is this is 2022. And here in my hometown of Poway, there are three elections for city council. The first is for mayor, OK? And our mayor is Steve Voss, and he's running for re-election. And if you ever know Steve Voss is, he's easy to recognize. He always wears a cowboy hat. And uh, he's something. He's a character. Uh, he, he, he's a country music uh, um, singer. He's won a Grammy. Um, he is uh, a, a music promoter. his, his uh, By the way, his daughter is has a very nice – country music career launching very impressive and his son is a is a you know graduated from film school and is in the movie business and you know it's a great family great kids and uh and so anyways he's running for re-election in this town of Poway and he won originally in 2014 was re-elected in 2018 in 2020 he ran for county supervisor and lost by the most unbelievably narrow percentages. It had to be less than a tenth of a percent. Yuri Bolin, if you're still on the live stream, you could probably tell me the number. But I mean, it was unbelievable how close that election was. And he lost to Joel Anderson. So I think he was assuming he'd be in the city or county uh, supervisor. But now he is still mayor. So now it's 2022. He's running again. And Steve Voss is a character that a lot of people really like him. And there's a lot of people that don't like him. But as a general rule, most people, there's more people that like him that don't like him. And that's why he was reelected in 2018. And he's going to be a favorite in this race, in my opinion. Um, oh Yeah. So Yuri Bolin on the live stream says he thinks Voss lost by 282 votes in 2020. That's about right. And that was out of over 200,000 total votes cast, because I think each... Each candidate had over 100,000 votes. I mean, it was unbelievable how close that race was. Well, you know, he's the incumbent. And in every race, an incumbent always has an advantage. They have name recognition. Um, they have a certain degree of, um, what's, what's the right word, cachet in the community. Um, they're looked upon as a leader because they've already been elected. Um, they have, often have a lot more resources available to them and they're more skilled as a politician. And so generally speaking incumbents have a huge advantage in elections. And that's frankly that's true not just at the local level but at the state level, presidential level, it's generally true. So you've got to think that Steve Voss is probably going to be a favorite. Now his there there is growing opposition to Steve Voss in the city of Poway because there's been so much development. There's a lot of people that are angry. And there's a lot of people that were previously sort of on the sidelines politically. They're now getting engaged. And so in previous elections, I think Steve Voss kind of had sort of a... Well, In 2014, he had a really difficult race and he won because he had to beat an incumbent, which was hard. In 2018, all due respect to the candidates that ran against him, uh, Steve Voss won pretty comfortably. But this time... He can't take anything for granted. Um, I think. I think there's a lot of voters that are going to be looking at alternative candidates a lot more closely this election cycle than they have in the past. So who are the alternatives? And one of them is on the live stream right now. Yuri Bolin is uh, running for mayor, and he, Yuri ran in 2018. He was a guest here on my podcast, and Yuri, of course, you're welcome to join us again on the on the show. We'd love to learn more about you and learn more about your platform. Uh, but Yuri, is very involved in uh, civic affairs. You see him at city council meetings all the time, has a very strong presence on a lot of our social media uh, here in the town of Poway. I think Yuri is going to be competitive. I think he's going he's, he's to you know, give Steve Voss a really healthy race. But there's other people, too. Some of these I don't really know. Um, there's a, a, a person, her, uh, his or her name, I think it's a her, is Amika Ibekwe. Forgive me if I'm not pronouncing that right. Um, that person is running, a business owner here in Poway. Uh, Delta Esparza is running. Um, I heard from our good friend, Pete Neeld. He met Delta and thinks Delta is a very good candidate. She uh, she is a works for a defense contractor and she's young, uh, but a very sharp young lady. Uh, Pete thinks that she could be a potentially a good mayor in this city. And then another person, again, forgive me if I pronounce this wrong, uh, Bavana Kansal um, is a designer and business owner here in Poway, and that person is running as well. So there's five candidates. There's uh, an incumbent and four challengers. So this will be interesting to see. Now, generally what happens here is that, and we saw this in a lot of the races in 2018, where there might have been one incumbent and four challengers, just like here. In 2018, in District 1, this happened. You have the one incumbent, and then the anti-incumbent vote, when it's dispersed and fragmented across four challengers, it kind of makes it easier for the incumbent to win because the opposition is split in pieces. be interesting to see how this plays out. But I think Yuri has a lot more name recognition than he did in the last election, so we'll see how that goes. Now, the next race, I think, is also fascinating, too. And this is District 1 in Poway. And, you know, Poway has been divided into districts. There's four districts now. Um, And the 2018 and I think the 2020 election was part of the transition that we went through to get into a full district-wide elections. And so, you know, there's like four subsets of Poway. So District 1 is sort of in the – sort of kind of the central and the western part of Poway, if I'm saying that right. Um, And – the incumbent, Dave Grosh, is not running, uh, which is incredible. Like they, you know, there have been rumors that he was going to step down. Um, you know, he originally ran three election cycles ago and promised to have term limits of two terms, and then he ended up running for a third and won. And Dave Grosh is generally very well-liked in town. He's a very nice man. Um, he has a good heart, and and he's decided to retire. So, okay. But when the incumbent steps down, then it's kind of like wide open season. And District 1 in 2018 had, remember I said, the incumbent and four challengers. So it kind of confused the establishment versus the anti-establishment vote. Well, now there's only two candidates in District 1 and Poway. And they're both very interesting candidates. Now, and I'm reading... The list from the the from poway so this is a no priority order uh, Brian Pepin is one of those candidates um, and generally speaking, Brian Pepin has the support of the existing city council of the mayor and of the four council people and in fact, I think I saw all of them endorsing him on his website. Brian Pepin is a Republican, the uh, current or former chair of the Lincoln Club, which is a downtown San Diego, kind of business um, lobbying organization, uh, community organization. Um, Brian Pepin is very active politically in the the Republican Party, is um, often assisting other candidates. Um, He's been active in our city, being member of the Budget Review Committee and, you know, kind of falling in line with a lot of the power structure here in Poway. So in many ways, he represents sort of the establishment of Poway. And he's being challenged by a true progressive challenger, and his name is is Hiram Soto. And Hiram is a, um, a, a, a newspaper writer by trade that he'll do the digging and uncovering facts. And he likes to say that he listens to the people. Um, and a lot of his uh, background as a journalist can be a real asset for him. Um, He is very active, reaching out to the community. He's been extremely active on social media, whereas Brian Pepin, not as much. Um, In fact, very little that I've seen from him on social media. So it's going to be an interesting race because now we've got two candidates. There's no fragmentation. You essentially have one candidate that represents sort of the establishment and one candidate that represents change. One candidate, ironically, the one candidate who represents the establishment is the, is the one where there's been the most change in development in Poway. Brian Pepin is sort of riding that horse, whereas Hiram Soto, who is politically progressive, but not, not for development. I mean, he would like to see a lot less development in this town um, to slow it down. Um, and there's a lot of people in Poway that think that, that want to see it slowed down. So now we've got two guys, a real litmus test here to kind of see what the voters want. Very interesting to see what happens. Because there's been so much change in Poway, there's a lot of people that are really hot on this issue. Um, so I'm fascinated with this race because there's only two candidates. Now the third race is District Three, and I live in District Three. You know, I, I gave a fleeting thought to running myself, but I decided there's no way. So uh who's running? Well, John Mullen is the incumbent. He is also retiring or not resigning, retiring. And it's it's a wide open slate now. So who do you got? There's three people running. Um, and in order, according to this document in front of me, um, Peter DeHoff is running, and we've seen his name around. He's also kind of, generally speaking, aligned with the existing power structure at City Hall. He has been a member of the Budget Review Committee. A Full disclosure, I was on the Budget Review Committee in 2007- and eight or 2006 and seven. Can't remember. It was a while ago. Um, but Peter De Hoff is a, a, a clear supporter of Mayor Steve Voss. I mean, he's very outspoken about it on social media. And so, generally speaking, he's aligned with that power structure in many ways, similar to how Brian Pepin is. And, you know, for the longest time, the incumbents were like almost impossible to beat in Poway. Because generally speaking, Poway's been a fairly well run city. But now I think there's a lot of people that would debate that point because of all the development. So, you know, so Peter De Hoff, like Brian Pepin, they're, you know, they're for safety and police and fire and roads and recreation and kind of, you know, taking care of all the meat and potatoes, the basic fundamental things that a city hall needs to do. But there's there's two challengers to Peter Hoff. the second person on the list who's a former guest from on the John Riley Project, Tony Russo. Tony Russo is an unbelievable guy. Tony Russo ran in 2020 and um, wasn't successful. He's running again. Uh, extraordinarily well-known guy in Poway. Went to school in Poway. Has a ton of friends, lots of supporters. He's very visible on social media and has been for a very long time and he's a bundle of energy um and, and and he's he's a fun guy you know he when he came over and we had the podcast interview with him, he was enjoyable to talk to and and uh you know he has some very serious ideas, but you know he's not as serious as the other candidates i mean not saying that he 's unserious, but he's just Will smile a lot more and laugh a lot more and have a lot more fun along the way. Uh, So, but he is extraordinarily well known and has a really strong base of people that will support him no matter what because he went to school here and he's lived here and, you know, he used to own the O'Harley's, which was a very popular bar and restaurant. Uh, Now it's called Players, you know, it's down by Walmart. Um, He's just a really well known guy. So, he's going to be a formidable challenger, especially in a three way race where. The vote can kind of get split up. And then the third person in the race is Kevin Juza. Now, some people might say that name sounds familiar. And yeah, because Kevin Juza ran for school board in 2020 um, in District B, which is the district I live in for the school board. And he ran a race against uh, Ginger Couvret, who won, and ran and and also Kimberly Garnier. Um, Kevin Juza was the teachers' union endorsed candidate. Uh, Kevin Jouza um, wasn't successful in the 2020 election, or maybe it was it 2018. I'm getting – no, it had to be 2018. Excuse me. It was 2018 because this race is four years later, so it's come up again. He um, ran in 2018 and then was unsuccessful. And then when they had the bond measure to, uh, you know, to fund more – uh, capital expenses, you know, to, to build more and remodel the schools. As far as I know, I think he was the the chairman or the spokesperson for that effort. Um, you know, so in many ways, Kevin Jouza is very aligned with the educational establishment. But I think when it comes to the city council, we're going to learn more about him. Given the people that are supporting Kevin, I'm going to assume that he is a more progressive candidate rather than a more conservative candidate. But I don't know. And we're going to learn more. And I'm interested. And again, all of these candidates are welcome to join me here on the podcast. Um, Yuri Boland corrected me, yeah, it was. It was 2018. You're right, Yuri, when um uh, when Kevin ran for uh school board. So you've got five people running for mayor with an incumbent, Steve Voss, and then the other two races, the incumbents have both retired which makes the field wide open. And the interesting thing is that District 1, there's only two candidates. And District 3, there's three. So I think in many ways, the so-called loyal opposition in Poway, they've sort of organized themselves to rally behind one candidate in District 1 for sure. Because they didn't want more candidates jumping in because you know that fragments the vote. So this is just setting out to be a very interesting race. And then, yeah, like in in District 3, you've got Two gentlemen that are very politically astute, politically involved in our in our city of Peter De Hoff and Kevin Juza. But then you have Tony Russo, who's a business person extraordinarily well known. This is his second shot at getting involved in politics. So all three of those candidates have something going for him. So I'm curious to see how it goes. Now I want to talk just briefly also about school board. Now, you know, Poway Unified has Five trustees or school board members, and three of those races are up for election. Now, full disclosure, I ran in 2014, and I lost by less than, no, not less than, slightly more than 1%. It was very close. Um, But some of the candidates that I ran with or ran against in 2014 have been on the school board multiple terms, and one of them is Michelle Michelle O'Connor Ratcliffe. And she is running for re-election in trustee area B, which is in Rancho Penasquitos. And remember how when they carved up the districts, they did the district work in Poway Unified. At one time, they had four council members or trustees that lived in Penasquitos. And they had a a little zone of a, what was it, a one-mile radius circle and four of the five um Elected trustees lived in that one mile circle out of a school district that was 10 miles by 10 miles, 100 square miles. Um, it, they, it was ridiculous how they gerrymandered the district. So, as a result, you got a lot of Peñasquitos folks that are involved that are on the school board. So, one of them is Michelle O'Connor Radcliffe. She's a former president of the school board, um, you know, because they have kind of a rotation um, with that, and it's an unofficial rotation. But she has been probably president more disproportionately than a regular rotation would be, um, so she is very well known, very well organized. Um, her, you know, her family, especially her mother, was a longtime teacher, and you know, she's essentially dedicated her life to this—to to being a school board member and raising her children there. And Michelle O'Connor Ratcliffe has huge support amongst the educational establishment. But there's a lot of people that don't like her. And and just like really any politician, that's true, right? Where people, some will like them and some won't. But in her race, there is only... Where is it? Ah. Excuse me. She's in Area D. Pardon me. Area D. I said B earlier. She's in Area D. She has one person running against her. And her name is Janet Bremseth. Janet Bremseth, a community volunteer. And... I don't know who Janet Bremseth is. I'd like to learn and find out more about her. But I know that she's obviously not elected. She is a challenger. I don't know what her background is, what her credentials are, but she's going to have a difficult time winning that race because Michelle O'Connor Ratcliffe is so well entrenched, so well established, has won already twice in a row going for her third election. There's only one challenger. That's going to be a, as they say, a tough out to, to defeat Michelle O'Connor Radcliffe. So that, that race, I don't know, might be interesting, but on paper, it doesn't look so interesting. Now, there's a couple of other races that are worthy of looking at um, in Area C, which I think this is an interesting one because this is TJ Zane's district. You know, TJ Zane ran with against me or with me against me in 2014, he was successful. He's not running for re-election, which is very surprising. T.J. Zane, the former executive chairman of the Republican Party of San Diego, who, by the way, has the full support of the teachers union, which is an interesting you know, juxtaposition. Um, T.J. Zane is a political animal and knows the, 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 the power structures to be, knows what buttons to push, knows where to get support and endorsements. He's a very intelligent, calculating, political candidate, politic, politician, but he's not running for re-election. When I discovered this, I was shocked. Um, I don't know what would cause him to do that, and he's not running for another office. There was a time that he was suspected he was going to run for city council for the spot that's currently occupied by Chris Kate for the C- San Diego City Council, and he he formally declined that, I think, two years ago. Um, so I don't know what he's doing. Um, I know he's from the East Coast. I think his family's from Connecticut. He went to college in Pennsylvania. So is, he, is the family moving? I don't know. I just speculating. But it was very surprising to see that he's not running. But that creates opportunity for other people. And so there are three people that are running for uh, school board in trustee Area C. And one of them is a gentleman named Patrick Batten, uh, a businessman in U.S. Marine. Another gentleman, Jason Bennett, a restaurateur, a Marine, and a father. And then finally, Heather Plotsky, an education advocate and bookkeeper. Now, I don't know any of these candidates. For some reason, Heather Plotsky's name sounds familiar, but I don't really know any of these candidates. I really couldn't offer any judgment, any preview. But given that there's no incumbent in that district, and again, by the way, this is all mostly Rancho Penasquitos and I think some forest ranch that's in this district. So this will be kind of a free-for-all. We'll see who gets traction. Now, you know of these candidates, one of them is going to be aligned with the teachers union because the teachers union will always endorse one candidate. Then there's the Poway – what was it? Why why can I not – a PSEA, Poway School Employees Association, is the union for all of the non-teachers. You know, they, they call them the classified staff. You know, the teachers are certified, you know, because they have the certification for their teaching credential. The classified are all the non-teachers, the administrators, the counselors, the groundskeepers. I mean, the uh, the management staff, the people in food services, the bus drivers, they're all in PSEA. And that's another union which often has competing interests with the teachers' union And so I'd imagine one of these candidates is probably going to get the endorsement of PSCA, and one will get the endorsement of the teacher, and then the other one won't have either endorsement, which they may wear as a badge of honor. So we'll see. So curious to see how that one plays out. And then finally, um, in Poway Unified Trustee Area B, which is where I live, there are three candidates. And just reading off this list in the order that they're presented— um, one of them is a lady named Frida Brunzel. Um and Frida is a education advocate and an engineer. I have been seeing her activity on social media. She has been extremely active. Um she has support, I think, from uh I'm gonna make an assumption here, from the Democratic Party or people that are in on that side of the fence. Um And we're going to learn more about her. But generally speaking, I'm noticing that there are fundraisers that occur where Frida is appearing, and so is Hiram Soto. So um, I I, I would assume that their political interests are aligned. So uh, she's running, but she is an extraordinarily credible candidate. Um, She has been very active in education. She's got a whole bunch of ideas. Um, And she's going to be a very interesting challenger. Now, there is an incumbent, and the incumbent is Ginger Couvrette. Now, Ginger is uh, an extraordinarily well-known person in the city of Poway. uh, Was the previous—God, what was she? She was the president of the Poway Sports Council, which is the organization that works with the city to allocate fields for all the youth sports uh, leagues. She might have even been president, I think, of the Poway— soccer if i recall um and she ran a lot of um uh what was it the the what would they call it the pumpkin what was the name of that it was a halloween that uh um a halloween event 5k fundraiser she was the chair of that why am i blanking on the name of it um she's extremely well known in the city um she's done a lot of work and and knows a lot of people and is very well aligned with a lot of the power Based political structure in the city of Poway and on the school board. Um, and her husband, by the way, is, um, if I recall, is the president of the local Kiwanis chapter and is the current or former president uh, or, or chairman of the Poway chamber of commerce. So um, definitely a power couple, certainly. Um, but she's, like I said, Michelle O'Connor Ratcliffe will be a tough out. I think Ginger Kouvret is going to be a tough out because she's an incumbent. She has lots of name recognition and incumbents always have an advantage. Um, So is Frida going to be able to be a formidable challenger? Now, if you look at on paper, Frida has a lot going for her, you know, so she could be a very viable challenger, but we'll see how it shakes out. Right. Um, And then there's a third candidate running and his name is Dave Nelson. And he is a small business owner. And honestly, I don't know who Dave Nelson is. He, I'm sure he's a, a, a quality gentleman, or probably a very good candidate. We're going to learn more about him. Now, when you, again, when you have a three-way race, you know, interesting things can happen. You might have two candidates that are neck and neck, and you get a third one in there. It can kind of swing the race either way. You know, People like to look back at the 1992 presidential election when Ross Perot was involved. Now, some people mistakenly think that Ross Perot swung the 92 election for Clinton and took the election out of George H.W. Bush's hands. Now, just a, this is a tangent, but that election, if you go back and look at the history books and people have analyzed it to death, Ross Perot really didn't affect the outcome. His support sort of kind of was 50-50 from Bush and Clinton. So he didn't really have that effect, even though a lot of people think he did. But in these elections, when there's three people running, yeah, uh, you could have two strong candidates and maybe one less than strong candidate that could be a curveball that could throw the election either way. So I'm very curious to see how this goes. Now, again, every one of these candidates are welcome to join me here in the podcast, and we'll talk about their issues. We'll go through their platform. We'll learn about their background. We'll ask them questions about their family, their history, why they are interested in, in the job that they're pursuing. We'll learn more about their careers. We'll, and and the, over the course of these interviews, the beautiful thing is, is that you learn more about what makes that candidate tick. You learn more about their character, what their values are. You get an understanding of what things happen in their life that sort of shape their worldview. It's hard to get that from looking at a campaign flyer or door hanger. It's hard to get that from a two-sentence blurb in the local newspaper. It's even hard to get that at a candidate forum or candidate debate when they have 60 seconds or 30 seconds to respond to a question. Now, granted, in a candidate debate, you can learn a lot through body language and a lot of other things. But here in the podcast, I just like to have the sit down and we just talk. And you know, if you are a, a long-time listener, a long-time viewer of my podcast, I have opinions. I've, in some cases, very strong opinions on issues. And I like to v- share those in these solo podcasts. But when I do an interview, my my approach is different um, because I'm not their challenger. I'm not their opponent. So My style in those interviews is going to be more inquisitive, you know, to learn more, to ask questions, to uncover things, to have them explain things, and then in many ways to reflect a lot of the vocal opinions I hear from people in my neighborhoods, because I've lived in Poway since 1996, and I can share a lot of those common objections, those common questions that a lot of people have. And present those to the candidates and we'll see how they respond. And so, um, yeah, so those are all open. And there's one more that I want to mention. And granted, you know, of course, there's state assembly and state senate and, and Congress. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other elections. But there is one other one that's really important to me that I do want to share. And that is, yeah, right here. It's uh, Superior Court Judge Office Number 36. This is the race for that Pete Murray is in, right? So Pete Murray is my neighbor. Pete Murray lives down the street from me. Pete Murray is a guy I've known from Poway National Little League because his children played there. My son played there. That's how I got to know him. He's a coach. He's a great guy. He's a, he's a former um, assistant district attorney in the county, and he's actually really good friends with one of my college buddies. Um, he's... Uh, A former deputy attorney general, Um, he's been in private practice, and now he's running for judge. And he ran for judge in 2020 and came up short. But this time, he's got a very good chance to win. And in his primary, which was back in June, there were four candidates that ran, and he came in first place. But he didn't quite have 50%. So it's going to the runoff in November, and he's running against a gentleman named Peter Singer, um, and so he is a, a, a Superior Court Commissioner for the County of San Diego. So I'm hopeful that Pete Murray will join us again. I mean, we if you go back and look at that podcast, oh, my gosh, the things that we covered. We talked about criminal justice reform. We talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about the backlog in the courts and the impact of the, of the pandemic on the court cases. We talked about the jails and the challenges in the jails. I mean, Pete Murray... That podcast episode, in and of itself, is just so unbelievably educational to learn more about the criminal justice system in San Diego County and kind of way the process works, and a way a lot of the, the the challenges in the system and and how a lot of there's a lot of problems that need to be solved. And then he talked a lot about what a role of a judge should be, and and frankly, it is it is to judge, you know, to render opinions and verdicts. Um, so it was just wonderful. So, um, you know, of course, I'm rooting for Pete Murray in that election. You know, in the other elections, I'm not really taking sides. Um, I've generally never endorsed candidates because I try to make I want to invite them onto the podcast. So I don't want them to think they're coming into in enemy territory. So I've generally uh, have never endorsed candidates for city council or, or school board, and I probably never will. I won't rule it out, but I probably never will. But in this case, for the for the judge position, for judge, Superior Court Judge Office Number 36, I am endorsing Pete Murray because I think he's a great guy and he's the most qualified guy you could ever think of to do this job. And he'd be terrific. Um, and he's a man of very, very high character, which is what we need in that role. So so anyways, that's another race that's coming. Um, so- yeah. It's just, there's a, I mean, gosh, I all, my notes are all over the place here, but uh, there's a lot going on, right? So gosh, we're at an hour and 30 and I see a lot of you are still sticking with me on the live stream. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. So if you want to learn more, I told you, you can go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. You can go, I have another page. It's connectwithjohnny.com connectwithjohnny.com is if you want to get involved with social media. All my social media links are there. You can follow me, subscribe to the podcast, join the mailing list. And uh, you know we just did a, an email uh, yesterday in preparation for this episode talking about some of the things we're going to be speaking about. So join the mailing list. We'd love to have you there, kind of share the good news. You can sign up at johnreillyproject.com or connectwithjohnny.com. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot in store here. So Every Tuesday at 7, I'm going to do this live stream. We we used to do it Wednesdays at 2. We're going to do it Tuesdays at 7 now. Um, And there's going to be a few weeks I'm taking off because of, you know, vacation and different things. Uh, But we're going to mostly be sticking to this. And um, every Thursday at 3, we're doing the podcast with Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. You know, show me your lightning bolt, San Diego. So that's every Thursday at three. And it's great having Hacksaw. He sits in this chair right behind the microphone. And boy, we get the best 15 minutes in sports. Hacksaw's headlines. It's like beautiful. So uh, that's Thursdays at three. And that's also live streamed on Lee Hacksaw Hamilton's platform. And I'm the, the co-host, I'm there. I'm visible. I'm kind of helping, making it go. Uh, but it's just a real honor to be involved with Lee. And uh, and I invite you to join us there. Um, so, yeah, that's the story, friends. Uh, Yuri Bolin on the live stream, chiming in. And, uh, hey, thanks for the props, my friend. Great show as always. Well, thank you. You know, it's funny. I prepare these things. I Sometimes I'm not sure what I'm going to talk about. And then the idea will come to me, like yesterday, last night, and then I think about a little more this morning and this afternoon, and the idea sort of changes. And honestly, when I get here and put myself in front of this microphone, it changes even a little more. But we end up where we end up. And in the end, I just like sharing my thoughts and opinions. This podcast is all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And by the way... If you're interested in the pursuit of happiness, I have another website you can go visit. It's called happiness76.com, and it's a website that I created that sells products that celebrate our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. It celebrates a lot of political messaging that I believe in, you know, my body, my choice, and and uh, all genders are created equal, a lot of different things. Some of it's kind of leans left. Some of it leans right But if you want to check it out, go to happiness76. If you want to support the show, you can do it by buying product there. Or you can go to johnreillyproject.com and make a donation. And we'll take donations there if you'd like to support the show. Okay. So we'll see you later Thursday at 3. Tune in to Lee Hacksaw Hamilton's podcast. I'll be back here next Tuesday at 7. Now I want to get back to the Padre game. Does anyone have a score? How are we doing? Um, Hopefully we're... Back in, uh, we, we need to win some games, friends. So I'm going to go watch the Padres. All right, we'll see you later, friends. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor. Subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog, or get more information, please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.